Welcome to Discovering Nutrition with Chronometer. I'm your host and community marketing manager, Elisa, and today I am excited to have on special guest Cyrus Kambata. Cyrus Kambata is a PhD and is the New York Times bestselling co-author of Mastering Diabetes and has helped more than 10,000 people reverse the underlying cause of insulin resistance. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Stanford in 2003, as well as a PhD in Nutritional Biochemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 2012. He is an expert in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes and has been living with type 1 diabetes since his diagnosis in 2002. Since then, he's reduced his insulin use by more than 40% using a food-first approach. In this episode, we sit down with Cyrus to discuss the connection between exercise and blood glucose, as well as why managing diabetes while consuming a high-carbohydrate diet is absolutely possible. As always, this podcast is for general purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including getting medical advice. The use of information on this podcast is at the user own risk and is not to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Without further ado, let's get cracking. I have been exposed to mastering diabetes for I don't even know how long, at least four or five years, Mm -hmm. but you and I have never got to really chat. So I'm very excited about this. My primary contact has been mostly Robbie and following his journey. And he just finished an Ironman not that long ago, right? Mm -hmm. He just did it a couple of days ago, for sure. I was second Ironman. Really? Mm-hmm. Th- that is incredible. There yeah, would be so many nutrition considerations, I would think, even just for running that without managing diabetes or mastering diabetes, maybe I should say. But they, even more, it's incredibly impressive. How, do you Ironman? No, I don't. I choose not to do triathlons because I don't love what happens to my body when I do in, endurance sports. I've done it for a long time back in the day. And I just get hyper skinny. And I don't mm. love it because the amount of calories that I'm expending is absurd and I can't take on enough food to whatever. I can't take enough of calories in order to like, you know, not go into negative calorie bounce. But then in addition to that, because it's like linear movement, repetitive movement, you know, I end up actually like getting quite skinny and I'm like, dude, I don't like the way that my body looks. You know, like I want to be able to like be muscular and strong, which is why I gravitate towards doing more resistance-based exercises through CrossFit and beyond. So it's just a personal choice. What are the things that you have to pay attention to as a type 1 diabetic when you're lifting? Are there similar considerations with lifting as there yeah, are parents? There's definitely a lot of things that I have to take into account, but I feel like I've kind of figured it out because, okay, so when you live with type 1 diabetes, you got to take your food seriously right? Mm -hmm. It's, it becomes a full-time job and that's okay. Especially if you enjoy it. Right. So I choose to eat a 100% plant-based diet. That is a hundred percent personal choice. And I made that choice back in 2003. And when I made that choice, I was like, Oh crap, this feels like rocket fuel. It's, it's a very cool feeling to go Mm -hmm. from being like, you know, eating whatever you have in front of you, eating pizzas and nachos and turkey burgers and beyond and feeling decent to switching over to eating a plant-based diet and all of a sudden being like, whoa, like this is literally rocket fuel. I've never felt this way before, right? I got a lot more energy than I ever did. I can recover from exercise a lot faster. And that means that I can push more than I've ever been able to push. And like all of that is really cool. 
And why would you not, you know, like I made a choice early on in the game that uh, because eating a plant-based diet makes me feel that way. Cool. Sweet. Let's do it every single day. Right. Then you layer another thing on top of that, which is living with type one diabetes and living with type one diabetes is a full-time job unto itself. Meaning that you got to monitor your blood glucose all day long, every day. You have to understand that, you know, what is the, the cause and effect relationship between the foods that I'm putting into my body? What is it causing my blood glucose to do in the short term? What's it causing it to do in the long term? And how can I use my food as a sort of like, you know, as a tool to help me control my blood glucose on a daily basis? And then if you layer on top of that, the third one, which is, you know, if I'm exercising on a daily basis, what's that going to do my blood glucose values, right? What's that going to do to my blood glucose control? And so, you know, when you're living with type one diabetes, you end up just becoming like, you have to, your brain becomes a supercomputer and it becomes a supercomputer that has to like really dial in all of the micro details that, you know, another person living with type one diabetes just may not be paying attention to. So, you know, you have to figure out what is my sleep doing to my fasting blood glucose? What is my sleep doing to my post-meal blood glucose? Is there a relationship? Yes or no. If I do cardiovascular exercise, what is that going to do to my glucose? Is it going to cause it to drop in the short term and then rise in the long term or drop in the short term and drop in the long term? If I'm doing resistance-based exercise, what is that going to do? Blah, 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 blah. So there's these like thousands of calculations that your brain is doing all day long, every day in order to construct this thing that we call a lifestyle. And that lifestyle, you know, you get to be the driver to determine, you know, what are you going to do on a daily basis in order to keep your blood glucose very well controlled? I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's just the way that I think of, you know, living with type one. It sounds like a lot, but then I think there might be great benefit to that a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like just knowing your body so well, you would know your so your body so well. I've always kind of just been curious about even just like hooking myself up to like a continuous glucose monitor just to see how my own body reacts. Like sometimes, not typically anymore, but sometimes I'd have like a slump in the afternoon. I think a lot of people have that slump around like 2, 3 p.m. And I'm like, I wonder what's happening inside of me. You know, I know how I feel externally, but you would actually have that, that feedback from what your body is doing from within and what, what happens like when you're lifting, can you explain, like, is there a correlation between, between lifting and a change in your blood glucose? Yes, there, there is actually, it's a very strong relationship. So I choose to do CrossFit and it's like my, one of my obsessions on this planet. I absolutely love it because CrossFit is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Okay. CrossFit is not just lifting weights. CrossFit is constantly varied movement and it incorporates three basic, you know, types of movement. Number one is gymnastics, meaning things that you do on a bar and things that you do on the ground that doesn't necessarily have any added weight to them. So that incorporates, you know, pull-ups, chest to bar, muscle-ups, toes to bar, handstand walking, probably a thousand other movements that I'm not even thinking of right now but a lot of those movements. So that gymnastics is one sort of like, you know, realm. Then in addition to that, there's also cardiovascular movements. These cardiovascular movements are things like running, getting on an assault bike. No, (laughs) (laughs) those those are the tools of the devil. I had one at home. Holy cow. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Assault bikes are terrible. Then you got the row machine. Then you got the ski erg. Then you also have 
a swimming pool, which is part of, you know, CrossFit competitions and beyond, right? So you have these cardiovascular movements. And then in, in addition to that, you also have just pure weightlifting. And the weightlifting is really fun. It's not just like getting on a bench, but it's, it's uh, you know, Olympic lifting. You got snatches, you got clean and jerks. And you also have power lifting where you have, you know, some bench press style exercises. You got squats, you got cleans, you got deadlifting. So they do a really good job of like taking all those movements and putting them into these workouts that are anywhere from like eight minutes long to 40 minutes long. And they just do, they, 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 they vary them in a way where you're doing some combination of these, you know, these three types of movements. And you just get hammered every single day, like in, in such a fun way. It's, it's really cool. So when you approach something like, uh, you know, CrossFit, or when you do these resistance-based movements, what I find as a user is that my, my blood glucose comes down and it becomes, and it comes down pretty darn quickly. So people in my classes make fun of me because I'm that guy who shows up and I'm like, even before the workout starts, I'm like literally eating in order to make sure that I'm fueled properly. Okay. I eat before I even show up to the gym. And then when I look at the board and I think to myself, I'm like, oh God, I got to do a total of 60 power cleans and I got to do, you know, a hundred box jumps. And then I also have to run about a mile interspersed into this workout. Like that's a big energy expenditure. So then I got to go and I got to make sure that I'm, I'm eating a little bit more just to fuel up for that. Okay. So what happens to my blood glucose is that generally speaking, when I start an exercise session, is that my blood glucose stays relatively stable, but then as my energy expenditure goes higher and higher and higher, especially when I'm working out at high intensity, okay, my blood glucose goes boop, 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 and it starts to fall. So let's say that I start my workout at a blood glucose of, call it 140, which is a perfectly normal physiological place to be prior to exercise. Then, you know, 15 minutes into exercise, my glucose could go from 140 all the way down to like 95. Right. And then I'm like, okay, cool. So totally normal. That's a safe place to be. But if I have another, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes of exercise ahead of me, you know, before I know it, my glucose can go from a 95 down to an 80, from an 80 down to a 70, from a 70 down into a 60, a 55. And now I'm in hypoglycemic territory, not a fun place to be, not ideal. Now we got to make sure that I'm eating something to bring my blood glucose up. Okay. So there's this general in the exercise physiology, what you'll see is that. If you're exercising in a low heart rate zone and you're doing that for extended periods of time, okay, that versus when you're exercising at a high intensity and your heart rate is climbing close to your, uh, your anaerobic threshold um, and you, you, there's sort of like a low intensity type of movement and a high intensity type of movement, your glucose can do very different things, completely different things. But from my perspective and from my experience, what I do find is that when I'm moving at those high intensities, blood glucose comes down pretty darn quickly. And you got to make sure that you're aware of it, that you can feel it and that you're fueled properly in order to prevent yourself from going too low, you know, below 70 milligrams per deciliter during the actual exercise. Are you then just bringing like gels or snacks to have how quickly do those kinds of things impact your blood glucose level to put it back to within like a normal range. Yeah. So I, I try not to eat those, uh, you know, gels or goose because I just don't like them mm -hmm. and they tend to be, they're not whole foods and I tend to eat, you know, a whole food plant-based diet as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So what I will do is I will eat, you can see it's on my desk here, these little magical nuggets called medjool dates. 
Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll put those in salads and stuff. They're yeah, yeah they're great. They're great. So yeah, you you know mm-hmm. they, they taste very good. They kind of they're taste very like sweet. Mm-hmm. Extremely <laughs> sweet. And mm-hmm. um the reason why I use them, I use them as a tool to make sure that my blood glucose doesn't go too low. And you know, a small amount of them, they don't very they don't weigh very much. They're very easy to eat. And when in a very short period of time you can get um, you know, about 80 calories. Um, it's about 18 grams of carbohydrate and it's almost like, it's not a pure carbohydrate, but it's very high in carbohydrate energy, which is very helpful. Right. So I'm eating, you know, medjool dates before and during exercise. And then I'm also eating things like bananas. And sometimes I'll eat other food, other fruits like mangoes in preparation for an exercise, because again, they're very high in carbohydrate energy, very low in protein and fat by design. And it helps me regulate my blood glucose very well prior and during exercise. It's interesting. And your approach with mastering diabetes is is so different because a lot of people within the diabetic community have been like worried about carbs or not even in the diabetic community, but just in the world in general. I would say that we're getting out of that phase for now. I think that low carb diets are something that trends, you know, like it's just same diet, different name. It was Atkins like 20 years ago. Now it's the ketogenic diet. People tend to demonize carbs. You and Robbie eat a lot of carbs. And I think that's shocking to, to many people, you know, when, when Robbie will share his chronometer diary on our socials and I reshare it, people are like, how is he eating that met me? Can you explain your own relationship with carbs as a type one diabetic? First of all, yes, I will do that. No question. First of all, if I haven't said this already, I freaking love chronometer. <laughs> I talk about chronometer Yay. all day long, every day. Uh, it's so great. It's it's such an easy Isn't it? tool. Such an easy tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of times that I use the word chronometer, just like you know, in my personal life, and then also when I'm helping to educate people about how they can track their macronutrients in particular to try and figure out what is the cause and effect relationship between what you're putting in your mouth and what it's doing to your blood glucose values. I mean, you know, chronometer is like literally one of my favorite tools on the planet. So thank you so much for putting the tool together and for helping thousands of people like myself use it and gather information about it. I think it's so amazing. And I will go off this sidebar with you. I've been here, you and I were discussing before we started recording that I've been here for almost six years. I've used the app for that long and I'm still learning stuff, you know, like I, my own journey with it is one of just gleaning so much knowledge from this little app. Like I knew about calories, had tracked calories, with pen and paper in high school. And then I learned about macros and micros. And now I'm like playing with those kinds of things with like running and electrolytes now, like really paying attention. So for me, I, I use it every day. I couldn't live without it. It takes me like, you must have it down to a science too, if you're a regular user. Like I'm in there for less than two minutes a day. And I just think that it's absolutely invaluable. Like, why would I not want to know what I'm putting in my body? And I'm not even someone that is managing any kind of of illness or anything. I just am, am very curious about my own nutrition and how it impacts my body. So yeah. I, I love it. You know, you become a super pro user and, and food logging mm-hmm. becomes fun, right? Mm-hmm. Because once you learn how to use it and you get the mechanics down, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. I do not use chronometer every single day. I mm-hmm. really don't, but mm-hmm. I use it periodically to be able to gather information to be like, huh, I wonder 
how many grams of fiber am I actually consuming for breakfast and for lunch and for dinner? You know, how mm-hmm. does that, what is my, my fiber to protein intake right now? I'm very curious. What is my carbohydrate to fiber intake? What is my total net carbohydrate? And how does that differ from my gross carbohydrate? Right? So there's all these different things that I'm always curious about. And the more that I use the app, the more that I recognize that it's just, you guys have done a really good job on making sure that it's just, it's just fun. It's just a very simple yeah. thing that you can do. And you can type in, you know, without using too much brain power, exactly what you're eating. And then you can get out a boat, a boatload of information from it. And you're just like, man, you guys just <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely yeah. nailed it. So if I haven't said that already, I love you guys. And uh, I, I appreciate thank what you, you. Thank you. I will. I'm, the team will listen to this podcast because they have to. <laughs> <laughs> I make them. I make them. Uh, and they'll be overjoyed because we just, we really love hearing those kinds of stories. And for me, because I get a front seat to people's user journeys, obviously I love hearing about people's successes with weight loss. That's really exciting. That is incredibly transformative. These people are regaining a ton of both their life, but where I have a very soft spot is for people that are managing some kind of illness or something like diabetes, or, you know, we have a a tube fed community where parents that are monitoring their tube fed children's nutrition, like that's where I feel like we're moving the needle is helping people that could have serious health ramifications if they're not tracking. Um, so I think that that's amazing. Yeah. And I know that there's, uh, you guys have helped us grow our diabetic community tenfold. I know that there's a lot of people that are living with diabetes that track and they are mostly power users. We have a little bit of data and these are people that are in the app all of the time. So it really emphasizes how important this tool actually is. Anyway. Cool. Good, good, good. I love it. So going back to your original question here, which is... I don't even remember it. <laughs> basically, how is it possible as a person living with uh, you know, type 1 diabetes to eat a ridiculous number of carbohydrates, mm-hmm. you know, a ridiculous number of grams of carbohydrate on a daily basis? It, or you know, a, a, another way to think about it is the majority of the world believes that when you, if you're trying to control your blood glucose which is an important concept in general health, but also specifically in the world of diabetes, how the heck can you do it by eating a high carbohydrate diet? It just doesn't make any sense, right? Because your average user has read information on the internet and has experimented with their diet sufficiently. And what they find is that when they eat carbohydrate, anything, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, potatoes, right? Those are the whole versions of carbohydrates, or they're eating refined carbohydrates, cookies, crackers, chips, pasta, sodas, breads, sweet cereals, you name it. Anytime they're putting carbohydrate material into their mouth, what happens to their glucose? Their glucose starts to rise. Their glucose rises within 30 minutes after eating that meal. It can go up after 60, it can go up after 120. And then people look at their blood glucose meters or their continuous glucose monitors. And they're like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Anytime I eat a potato, I can prove it to you. My blood glucose does weird things. Anytime I eat bananas, I can prove it to you. My blood glucose does weird things. And so as a result of that, the blood glucose community, the blood sugar community says, oh, okay, hold on. Carbohydrates are not good for you. You got to keep them very low in order to regulate your blood glucose properly. Okay. So you contrast that versus what Robbie and I do and what we've you know taught hundreds of thousands of people to do in our community is that carbohydrates are actually not bad for you. They never were bad for you. They never will be bad for you. 
And we got to understand some very basic tenets of carbohydrate metabolism if we're going to really play, if we're going to talk about it in an educated manner. Okay. So first things first, people talk about these things called carbs, right? Carbs. I, I hate that term. It's just a, it's a catch-all term because what people do when they're referring to carbs is they lump everything that's carbohydrate rich into the same umbrella. They put the refined carbohydrates and the whole carbohydrates into the same umbrella. And they say, okay, these are all carbs and carbs are bad for you. So don't eat them. Right. And, um, we have to make a distinction between what are the metabolic effects of eating refined carbohydrates and what are the metabolic effects of eating whole carbohydrate material. Okay. Now refined carbohydrates are dietary napalm. Okay. There, there are, there is, there's no health professional, whether you come from a ketogenic world or a paleo world or a whole food plant-based world or a vegetarian world, whatever it is, nobody is telling you to eat more refined carbohydrates. I think we can all agree that the cookies, crackers, chips, pastas, sodas, donuts, you name all of that stuff. It's just bad for you. Just don't put it in your mouth. It is going to cause blood glucose fluctuations. It's going to cause inflammation inside of your liver, inside of your brain, inside of your digestive system, inside of your muscles. Keep it out of your diet, period, end of story, okay? And if it is in your diet, no judgment to you. Just be aware of what it could do to your long-term metabolic health. It's not going to lead you in the right direction. So you have a choice. If you're eating, call it like three, four, five servings a day, just lower it so that you can get to one serving a day and then maybe even get to zero servings a day and keep that consistent for a long period of time. So let's get refined carbohydrates out of our vocabulary. I don't want to talk about them. They're, they're not good for you. You know that. I know that. Well, let's be done with it. The controversial forms of carbohydrate are fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. These are the ones that people are constantly battling about on social media. Mm -hmm. And there's so much misinformation about whether or not they're beneficial for you or they're not beneficial for you. Should you eat them? Should you not eat them? You name it. Okay. What we do at Mastering Diabetes and what we have told people to do for the past seven years and what I got my entire PhD education on is carbohydrate metabolism 101, right? Can is there a place for whole carbohydrates in your diet? Yes or no. And are they just kind of good for you? Are they bad for you or are they real good for you? And what the majority of the research demonstrates is that eating whole carbohydrate material is very good for you for a thousand different reasons. The only way that any human being is going to be able to metabolize whole carbohydrate energy properly is if they are doing it in a low fat environment. Okay. This is a fundamental truth with people are just having a difficult time understanding. I'll say that again, in order to consume a decent volume or decent amount of carbohydrate energy coming from whole sources, it is imperative that simultaneously you also do that in a low fat environment where dietary fat is a minority of your macronutrient intake. How many grams are you talking? Okay. So what we're suggesting is that if we do it on a percentage basis, we're looking at about 70% carbohydrate and about 15% fat, 15% protein. So we'll call it 70, 15, 15. You could also go as high as 80, 10, 10, 80% carbohydrate, 10% fat, 10% protein. So on a percentage basis, that's the sort of like general recommendation that we give on a per gram basis. It kind of differs because there's, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, if we're just going to zero in on how much fat to consume, what we teach people is that if you want ideal blood glucose control and you want ideal insulin sensitivity, which is the reverse of insulin resistance, the ideal number to shoot for is somewhere between 20 and 30 grams of fat per day, total fat, period, end of story. Okay. 20 to 30 total grams of fat per day. And if you can do that and you can, and you can eat that consistently every day, and you can hold that consistently for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you know, a month, two months, you name it. 
what you are likely to find is exactly what people in our community have demonstrated over and over and over again. That this thing called insulin resistance, this boogeyman that causes your whole, you know, many different metabolic diseases fades away into the background. You turn the insulin resistant state into an insulin sensitive state and blood glucose control becomes really, really easy, very easy. Okay. But all of it is predicated on the fact that number one, you got to lower your total fat intake to between 20 and 30 grams per day. And number two, the type of carbohydrate that you eat cannot come from refined products. It has to come from four categories, either fruits or starchy vegetables or legumes, which are beans, peas, and lentils and whole grains. So if you're doing that and you're eating that category of carbohydrate and you're simultaneously doing it in a low fat environment, just watch as your blood glucose control becomes very, very simple. And it's actually quite shocking to see how much of an impact it has in a short period of time. So why does the sugar from fruit differ from cookies and that kind of thing? Okay. Like how, how is, how is that processed by our bodies differently? Because a lot of people just believe that sugar is sugar and we know there's different forms of sugar and that they do impact blood glucose levels differently. Can you right. tell us why? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we're going to talk about two of them separately. Okay. Food is a matrix. Okay. And I'm going to use my hands to sort of demonstrate what this matrix is. Okay. We're not talking about like the matrix with Keanu Reeves. We're talking about a different type of matrix. So when you think about whole foods, whole foods are a three-dimensional matrix that contain nine different classes of nutrients, the macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Okay. Those are the, those are the three macronutrients. Technically speaking, there's a fourth macronutrient, which is called alcohol, but we're just going to get it out because it's not really present in most foods. So carbohydrate, fat, and protein, those are your three macronutrients. And then in addition to that, you have six micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, water, in fact, is a nutrient. Okay. Mm -hmm. Antioxidants and phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are, are disease fighting compounds that are found only in the plant world. Okay. So again, carbohydrate, fat, protein, your three macronutrients vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. These are nine classes of nutrients that every single whole food that you can think of contains. Whether that whole food is chickpeas or whether it's bananas or whether it's wheat or whether it's elderberries, it doesn't matter. All of them have nine classes um, de facto because they came from the whole food world. Okay. So these nine classes of micro and macronutrients coexist in a food in a three-dimensional structure. So take a look at this date as an example, what I showed you on the screen earlier. Okay. This date right here, <laughs> believe it or not, contains carbohydrate, fat, protein, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and micronutrients or, or um, phytochemicals inside of it. Okay. It's just that when we look at it from the outside, we're sort of like most people, what they do is they look at it and they go, oh, what are you talking about? That's just a pile of sugar. Like that's just the right? They're not paying attention to the fact that there's eight other classes of things that come along with it. Right. So if you go and you, you know, zoom down into being like a tiny little microhuman and you go inside of this thing to try and figure out like what is inside of this thing, right? Imagine you're microscopic and now you're inside of the date and you're looking around and you're just like, oh my God, what is all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. What you will find is that the fiber is the component that gives this thing its structure, okay? It's like the rebar inside of a concrete building, okay? It's the thing that creates the structure around it. It creates the structure. It creates the texture. It creates the, you know, whether it's squishy or whether it's hard, it creates the actual shape. Everything is determined predominantly by that fiber. But then in addition to that, all these other micronutrients and macronutrients, they coexist together and they are put into this three-dimensional matrix, which means that when you eat this thing, you're eating nine classes of micronutrients simultaneously. So those micronutrients travel down, they, they go through your mouth, they travel down your esophagus, they get inside of your stomach. 
They start to get partially digested there and unfolded. They get inside of your small intestine and inside of your small intestine is where the bulk of nutrient digestion occurs. The partially digested food material is acted upon by a whole collection of enzymatic uh, or enzymes that are secreted by your small intestine, plus your liver, plus your pancreas. And all these guys go to work and their, their job is to take large structures and break them down into small structures. So they take these long carbohydrate chains that are anywhere from like a hundred to 500 to thousands of glucose and fructose and other monosaccharide units long. And they start to chop them up into pieces that are 12 units long, and then eventually into four units and then eventually into one unit. Right. And they take fatty acids and they break them. They take the, the triglyceride molecule and they cut it off the glycerol backbone and they end up with fatty acids. Then you take these long proteins and you cut them down into the constituent amino acids. So all of that is happening inside of your small intestine. But remember, we talked about fiber earlier. The fiber is actually an essential component inside of this puzzle because when you consume fiber, fiber cannot get broken down inside of the upper part of your digestive system. It's just, we have no mechanism to be able to do it. Okay. Fiber equals cellulose and cellulose can only get broken down by cellulase. Well, guess what? You don't make cellulase. I don't make cellulase. No human being on the planet can manufacture cellulase. The only way that you can actually break down cellulose by cellulase is inside of your microbiome, inside of your large intestine, yeah. because your the 40 trillion plus bacteria that live in there, they manufacture cellulase. So when that fiber gets inside of your large intestine way downstream, now that fiber can start to get cut into individual, guess what? Glucose units, because fiber is glucose. And those glucose units can then get absorbed by the cells inside of your small intestine, your large intestine, and then they're used for energy. Okay. So if we go back up upstream into your small intestine again, that's where the bulk of nutrient digestion is occurring, but yet the fiber cannot be broken down in that compartment. So the fiber actually has a very pivotal role, which is that it slows down the rate of nutrient absorption. And this is critical for people to understand. Okay. The fiber's presence inside of there means that as these other enzymes are acting upon the carbohydrates and the fats and the proteins that are trying to extract out all those individual micro or uh, mono individual units and absorb them into your blood, the fiber is slowing down that whole process, which means it takes time. So that means that when I eat this date, my, I might think to myself like, oh, this is just a pile of sugar. And that means the sugar is going to get inside of my blood and my glucose is going to rise very quickly, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because the fiber is there to slow it down. Okay. So that happens for glucose absorption. It happens for fructose absorption. It happens for amino acid absorption. It happens for fatty acid absorption. Okay. And that's a good thing because that allows physiologically normal processes to occur, which means that fuel gets inside of your blood, but it gets inside at a reasonable rate. Now contrast that versus eating a cookie. Okay. If I already go pick up a cookie as an example, okay. The cookie has already gone through a manufacturing process in order to turn into a cookie. Okay. I can't even remember what, what goes into cookie dough at this point. Right. We got uh, flour, sugar, eggs, butter, flour, sugar, eggs, butter. Perfect. Okay. Uh, chocolate chips. Perfect. Co cocoa powder. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe a little peanut butter. Right. Totally. Okay. So the flour probably came from wheat. So you started out with a whole food, which was wheat, and then it got cracked and milled and grinded and dehydrated and blended and it turned it into an actual powder. And that powder got put into a bowl and then reconstituted with eggs. And then with, uh, what else you say with butter, which is a dairy product, which is predominantly saturated fat mm -hmm. and beyond. So that you, you put all that in those ingredients into one bowl 
you then turn it into a cookie, you put it in the oven, then you take it out of the oven and you eat it. And now all of a sudden you're like, cool, sweet. How many nutrients are inside of that cookie? Okay. Is there carbohydrate, protein, and fat? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Yes. Okay. Vitamins? Yes. Minerals? Yes. Fiber? Yes. Water? Yes. Antioxidants? Yes. Phytochemicals? Yes. Right? So technically speaking, it has all nine classes of micronutrients, but they're already processed, significantly processed. Right. And so as a result of that, the vitamin, mineral, fiber, water, and antioxidant and phytonutrient content is significantly lower. And it's been compromised because it's already been heat treated. It's already been broken down. And so as a result of that, when it, when you put it in your mouth and it travels all the way down your esophagus and your stomach and gets inside of your small intestine, well, guess what? The nutrient digestion process that happens inside of there happens a lot quicker. And so as a result of that, now glucose is getting into your blood quicker. So are amino acids, so are fatty acids. And that causes quicker rises in all of those individual units. Go for it. <laughs> Can you just see my brain? It's just growing. <laughs> it's amazing. One of the questions that I do have, and you, you explain that so beautifully. You have a gift, by the way. I'm you, happy you, that you. I'm, I'm happy that you're educating people. One of my questions, and I hope this isn't absolutely foolish, is then if you eat a cookie at the same time that you eat an apple, mm -hmm. is the cookie then going to be slower to digest and cause less of a rise in blood glucose. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, one of my favorite comedians of all time is this guy named Mitch Hedberg um, from the early 2000s. And he goes, man, I wish you could eat a carrot and an onion ring together and the carrot would cover for the onion ring on the way down to your stomach. <laughs> But you're asking the same question. Right? But I honestly want to know, yeah. like, would that, like, obviously just having a cookie is going to make your blood glucose level rise quicker than a cookie and an apple, technically speaking? Uh, the answer is yes. So it's it's actually a fascinating question because there's some research that I just can't think of who wrote this research and what year it was, but there was research that demonstrated that when you eat a bowl of cereal by itself and you watch the glucose rise that occurs after that bowl of cereal, and then in addition, and then um, you do that again, but you add blueberries to that bowl of cereal, the blueberries actually blunt the glucose rise. It slows down the rate at which glucose gets inside of your blood. So the blueberries are acting as a protective mechanism against a rapid blood glucose rise that occurs from a refined carbohydrate, right? It's the exact same thing that you're saying. Will the apple slow down the rapid glucose rise of the cookie? And the answer is yes, it will, because there's more material inside of your digestive system and the fiber itself is really the key player that's kind of slowing everything down and acting as a metabolic break. Okay. So let's go back to your original question, which is, you know, uh, are carbohydrates bad for you? Is there some type of like, you know, difference between the refined and the whole? And the answer is absolutely. There's a huge difference. What I want people to understand is that eating foods that come from the whole world, from the whole food plant-based world, you cannot, when you look at a food that's a whole food, you cannot look at that world with this reductionist mindset and say, oh, that's an orange. It's just a bunch of vitamin C. Oh, that's a banana. It's just a bunch of sugar, right? Oh, that's a chickpea. It's just a bunch of protein, right? You might believe that to be a true story because that's what all the books and, you know, that's what social media has taught you to believe. But in reality, if you look at it on an actual biological basis, what you'll find is that every single whole food has all classes of nine micro and macronutrients inside of them. And it's the presence of all of that together, which actually works in a very sort of like, you know, it works as a symphony to make it so that the fiber can slow down the rate of nutrient absorption, which actually protects you against erratic glucose, amino acid, and fatty acid rises post-meal.
But I when you're think- eating refined foods, the, that doesn't happen anymore because the presence of the fiber has already been partially broken down. The fiber might be absent and or the food itself might have a significantly reduced micronutrient content. And that can be a huge problem as well. So I think part of the problem and a barrier for people to be eating more whole foods, and honestly, this is a a barrier that I personally deal with, is where I live, like logistically speaking, I remember that I was on a call with Robbie and he was like, he's so passionate about different fruit it's amazing and he's like have you tried this <laughs> like he's like pulled it from the background he's like have sure. you tried this and i'm like i have no idea what that even is and <laughs> living living in british columbia in a small town like we are in the middle of nowhere the closest big center which has more than 100,000 people is 2 hours away we don't have the same quantity of fruits and vegetables yeah. Nor do we have, like, they're also considerably more expensive. Like, when I go to the grocery store, it breaks my heart that six apples is $6 more expensive than a box of Kraft Dinner. Right. Such is the world. It is. It is. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate. When you're helping people, when people sign up for your Mastering Diabetes program and you're teaching them all of this, but they just can't access the the foods that you guys would prefer them to or educate them to what is the solution there like what is the workaround for people who have barriers to eating whole foods okay great question the answer is actually quite simple can you get access to rice brown rice yes (laughs) brown rice yes potatoes Mm -hmm. okay black beans oh my favorite perfect chickpeas Mm-hmm. Okay. Lentils. Yes. Okay. In abundance. In abundance. There you go. Okay. So those those foods, regardless of where you live and whether it's Canada, United States, Mexico, you name it, tend to be relatively inexpensive and tend to be mm-hmm. available everywhere, right? So you can go to a grocery store, you can go to the bulk section, or you can just go to the, you know, the 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 ethnic food section, as they like to call it, and just mm-hmm. go pick up large bags of rice and beans. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those are always options and those shouldn't, that shouldn't be an excuse. Every single human being should be able to access those things for a very small amount of money. In addition to that, the way that I like to think so fruits and vegetables are seasonal, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. So if you eat within the season, then it tends to be a little bit less expensive, right? If you're trying to find uh, mangoes in the middle of the wintertime, good luck. You either won't find them or they're going to be stupid expensive. So mm-hmm. instead, you know, you eat what is available and hopefully try and find ways to keep that price as low as possible. I get it. I understand. Like even where I live in Florida, sometimes I'm, I look at, you know, like papayas and I'm like, I'm not going to pay $1.79 per pound for a papaya. I live in freaking mm-hmm. Florida, right? I know the price <laughs> of that should be 79 cents a pound. Pretty sorry, so I just mm-hmm. won't buy it, right? Mm-hmm. So you just kind of have to like navigate your way around. But if you have uh, stores like Walmart, or any of these like very large super centers like Target, you know, any any large grocery store. Generally speaking, you can go right into the center of the grocery store and go to the rice aisle, go to the bean aisle, go to the quinoa aisle, uh, go to the potato section and just stock up because those foods are really easy to find. And then there's also a whole collection of foods that you can get in the freezer section. Yes. The freezer section is actually a gold mine because they have- It is. Pre-cooked brown rice, pre-cooked quinoa, pre-cooked potatoes, 
and they got all types of fruits, acai, you name it. You can go nuts, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, you name it. It's all there. Yeah. And that's, that's what I find myself doing with like blueberries and stuff like that. I'll just go get frozen blueberries and add them to like a bowl of yogurt or that kind of thing. We're going to have to have a follow-up interview some other time because I have a billion more questions to ask you, Uh, but we are, we are um, running out of time. So my favorite question I ask everyone at the end of an interview. So my final question that I always ask everyone that we have as a guest on the podcast is if you had one piece of advice to give to our listeners about anything, what would it be? Oh, about anything in life. (laughs) (laughs) Just Um, some sage wisdom. I would say, here's my sage wisdom for the day. I haven't thought about this, but my gut instinct says that the most important thing in this world, in my opinion, is prioritizing human relationships. So Mm. anything you do, regardless of, uh, you know, on a daily basis, do whatever you can to be the best human possible to the people that are around you. And uh, that means, you know, be an honest individual, try and support others as much as possible and always act as selfishly as possible. And the universe works in very strange ways and you will be rewarded a thousand times over for being as selfless as, as possible. I love that. Where can people find you, Cyrus? So people can find us online, basically go to either masteringdiabetes.org. That's our website. We have a podcast. You can find that Mastering Diabetes Audio Experience. We have a book. If anybody's interested in learning more about blood glucose regulation and a lot of the concepts that we talked about today, just go to Amazon and type in Mastering Diabetes. That book became a New York Times bestseller back in 2020. We're mm-hmm. super proud of that. I read and it. Then you read it. Cool. Sweet. I did, did read it. it. Yeah. But I read it. No, not at all. I read it when it first came out, actually, because I'd been following Robbie's journey uh, just as a community manager. And I was like, this is so cool. So yeah, it was awesome. I love it. I I appreciate you saying that. And then in addition to that, we also were on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on, you know, Facebook, you name it. So just look up Mastery Diabetes. And one other thing I'll say is that we were acquired in 2022 by another company called Love Life. And Love Life is actually started by John Mackey, the uh, ex-CEO of Whole Foods. And oh, wow. so we are creating a new healthcare system. We're, we're trying to create a whole new healthcare system that actually prioritizes using food as medicine and teaching people how they can you know, use their lifestyle as their primary way to improve their health. So if anybody's interested in learning about that, just go to love.life, just www.love.life. You can learn all about it. It's fantastic. I could not love that more simply because I'm someone that will do everything dietary and physically before I start medicating or that kind of thing. So it's amazing. Good. You're in good company. Thank you so much for your time, Cyrus. I appreciate it so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Even though I myself am not a diabetic, I feel like there were so many takeaways in that conversation with Cyrus and I learned so much. If you feel that way too, make sure you subscribe and I will see you next time.